Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. In the summer of 2004, two teenage girls got in trouble for doing a good deed. Taylor Ostergaard, age 17, and Lindsay Joe Zaletti, age 18, got in trouble for baking cookies and giving them out to their neighbors. Uh, There was a dance that night, and they knew that the dance would probably be something where they'd get in trouble, so they didn't go to the dance, and instead they stayed up and baked cookies for all of Taylor's neighbors. Uh, The problem was that they delivered those cookies to the neighbors at 10.30 at night. We can understand how as a teenager you remember having good intentions, and yet the good intentions weren't always Uh, thought through with a well-planned plan. Uh, Most of the neighbors receiving those cookies at 10.30 at night were thankful, although they didn't really appreciate it being that late. But one particular neighbor, Mrs. Young, was not happy at all. Mrs. Young was a 49-year-old woman who lived alone and struggled with anxiety and was filled with anxiety when there was a knock on the door, which was just two teenage girls with cookies, She was filled with anxiety, and she called out, who's there? There was no answer, and she just saw shadows. And Mrs. Young was not able to go back to sleep. So she left the house and fled to her sister's house and woke up the next morning and was still filled with anxiety from this incident that had happened the night before. She was so filled with anxiety, she thought she might be having a heart attack, and she went to the hospital. It turned out that she was okay, but she let the families know what had happened, and Taylor's family was really apologetic. Taylor felt really awful that she had had a good intention with an act, a deed, but it had a bad plan on how to implement it, and so the families offered to cover Mrs. Young's medical bill, Uh, but Mrs. Young wasn't happy with that. Uh, She felt that the apology was insincere, and that the offer to cover the bill was insincere. And so she rejected the apology. She rejected the offer for her medical bill to be covered and instead took Taylor's family to court. Took Taylor's family to court because she quoted and said that she felt like Taylor needed to learn a lesson. Needed to learn a lesson about doing something good. So the family was sued and ended up paying the medical bill anyway, which was $871, and then paid another $39 for the court costs. And on leaving the courtroom, Taylor was just heartbroken. Just heartbroken that she had had this idea to bless her neighbors and do something good and loving, and she admitted that she had had just a bad implementation strategy, obviously, but was just so heartbroken that her good deed was seen in the worst possible light. I mean, the worst possible light. We're finishing our series today on the Beatitudes, and as we have journeyed through the Beatitudes, and as these beautiful attitudes of the kingdom have shaped us, uh, we have grown more in love with Jesus. We have grown more in love with what it means to do good and and to follow in righteousness. We're more on board with what it means to uh, follow Jesus as the king of his kingdom. 
Dinath Ramachanda says this about the Beatitudes. Every political party just before a general election issues a manifesto. If you vote for us, this is the kind of society we will work to realize. Jesus gives us a description of the citizens of his kingdom. The kingdom is God's inbreaking rule, the new order that has dawned through the life and the ministry of Jesus. A new creation is dawning, a new humanity is forming. What does this new humanity look like? Well, in what we call the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3 through 12, Jesus spells out the characteristics of those who belong to his kingdom. These are the hallmarks of the people of the new order, the new humanity. As we've talked about being poor in spirit and being merciful and hungering and thirsting for righteousness, as, as we've talked about being peacemakers, our hearts have grown warm to what it means to follow Jesus in the way of the kingdom. But here's the catch. Jesus ends these beatitudes telling us, even though these are good things, you will be seen in the worst light when you practice these things. When you follow me in these beautiful attitudes of the kingdom, you will be seen much like Lindsay and Taylor were on that night that they did a good thing, but it was taken as something that was evil. <laughs> that's kind of a weird way to end the Beatitudes, but that's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 10 through 12. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward in heaven is great. Your reward is great in heaven for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's interesting that Jesus says we are blessed. I mean, he says it twice that we're blessed when People come against us when people speak ill of us that we are blessed. He says it twice. And as Jesus ends the Beatitudes saying that you're blessed when you're persecuted, many of our first thoughts go, well, Jesus just isn't very good at offering us a job as his followers. I mean, basically what it feels like Jesus is saying to us is, hey, listen, the hours are long, your work won't be appreciated, and the pay stinks. And so we wonder why Jesus tells us this. Well, Jesus tells us this because he assumes that we're already all in. And he's trying to offer us a word of comfort about how we will be perceived in the world even when we do the things that please him, even when we do the things that are good, even when we do the things that are righteous, we will not be perceived as good and righteous. We may be spoken of in an ill light. We may have people say that we're actually evil. We may have people see us in the worst possible light. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness. Now, just a clarification, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are you when you're persecuted for being self-righteous. No one likes someone who's righteous, self-righteous, right? I worked with a woman uh, probably 20 years ago and she spent most of the day, she was a Christian, but she spent most of the day telling me how other people were wrong or I was wrong. 
And whenever I confronted her on it and just said, hey, listen, I don't think that's actually what the Bible means when you're trying to apply this rule, she would claim it as persecution. She was no fun to be around, I'll just tell you that right now. But the Bible's not talking about being persecuted for being self-righteous. It's not talking about being persecuted because we're going around telling everyone else what they should do. Nor is it saying that we're being persecuted uh, or suffering just for living in this world as it's broken. I mean, we're broken people in a broken world, and we experience suffering like COVID-19 and like natural disasters and things like that. But that's not what Jesus is talking about right here. He's talking about when we live out godliness, when we live out righteousness, we will be blessed even if we are persecuted. When we live out biblical righteousness, when we talk about righteousness, there's really four areas that we live that out. Dr. Carl Ellis Jr. talks about these four areas. And the first two, we would call personal piety or personal holiness. And that means we each are individuals living by God's power, living by God's grace, doing our best to do right before God. And so unrighteousness would be individual unholiness, individual impiety. It would be that when I don't live according to God's commands for me. But there's also personal justice, There's a sense where individuals are called to do right to their neighbor and not do evil against their neighbor. And unrighteousness there would be individual oppression. But there's also a way we think about this communally and in our societies. If you can put the next paint up. We talk about social piety, communities doing right before God. When we think about the church at Corinth, there was an entire church consumed by immorality. And that was an issue of social piety. The group collectively was not living to please God in all these different areas. And so that was another area of righteousness. And the last area of righteousness that we see is how communities do right to each other. Now, the term social justice has all sorts of meanings in our our, uh, culture today, but... In the book of Leviticus, we see that almost all justice that's perpetuated outward is, has a social dimension to it. And so just because we talk about social justice doesn't mean that we define it in the same way as everyone else does. But justice is social. And God calls us to live out righteousness personally, socially, in terms of holiness and justice. And if we live out in these four different windows, if we live out righteousness, it will not be easy we will receive pushback. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Righteousness is just another way of saying godliness. And Paul tells Timothy, if you want to live out godliness, you will receive pushback. People will look at you funny. People will talk about you behind your back. People will come after you. You will be persecuted. Because when we live out righteousness, it challenges individuals. When we live out godliness, it challenges societies. It forces people to examine themselves, and it it messes with their own conscience. Tom Van Antwerp says it this way, When you really live the way Jesus calls you to live, your life may cause others to examine their own hearts and their motivations. They may see things that they don't like. 
Now hear me carefully, Jesus doesn't call us to be judgmental or obnoxious. He calls us to live beautifully. But here's what happens. Goodness has a tendency to expose what isn't good. Righteousness has a way of making sin more obvious by contrast. Have you ever been around someone whose life is loving and generous, and by comparison, you've discovered that you're actually quite selfish and stingy? Or maybe someone who lives simply and happily has shown you how much of your happiness is dependent on the things you acquire. When people walk humbly with God, it exposes the evil of pride, and those who speak with compassion will throw callousness into sharp relief. And if you are spiritually minded, your life will be a challenge to the worldly-minded people around you. If we do live out godliness and we do live out righteousness... It will be beautiful, and yet we will receive pushback. In 1976, Jimmy Carter was running for the presidential election, and during an interview, he said, uh, honestly, that he had looked upon other women with lust many times. And that line was played over and over and over in the news. If you, if you were alive during that time, you remember that. Uh, but Jimmy was, President Carter, President Jimmy Carter was just trying to be honest about his faults and his sins and how he had experienced forgiveness through Jesus Christ. But about that comment about having lust, uh, everyone's like, well, that's just not really presidential. <laughs> we don't really want to know that side of a presidential candidate. And maybe it was something more as well. Maybe it just wasn't that it wasn't presidential, but that Jimmy Carter's own battle against lust exposed that other people didn't even care about the issue. Or maybe that they thought it was okay. When he said those things about his own heart, he was being honest, but it caused other people to examine their own hearts and what happens inside of us. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. See, when we live out godliness and we live out righteousness by the power of the spirit, it is beautiful and yet it exposes other people. But it also exposes us. It exposes us because many times we think God the more I follow you, the more I practice righteousness, the more you'll bless me, right? Like the more I turn away from sin and follow you, the more I repent, the more I ask for forgiveness and, and come after you with all my heart, the more you're going to bless me and make my life easier, right? We all have that attitude in our heart, but this exposes us because Jesus isn't saying, if you do right, God will bless you. Rather, he says, blessed are you when you do right and you're persecuted for it. Blessed are you when you do right and you're persecuted for it. You know, in the, in the passages where Jesus calls us to follow him, so many of them are also a warning that following him will bring suffering and hardship and persecution. When you follow Jesus, you are filled with love and power and joy from the Holy Spirit, and yet at the same time, life becomes much more complicated. You think about relationships in a different way, and you think about how you treat your neighbor in a different way. 
And Jesus never tells people, listen, I'm going to set the bar low so it's easy to follow me. Rather, he says, listen, are you sure you want to follow me? Because if you do, your life will be more difficult and you might be persecuted by other people. But Jesus goes on to say in verse 11 that blessed are you when you're persecuted because of me. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. It doesn't seem like the blessed life, but that's what Jesus says. Jesus is questioning our own loyalty to him because being righteous or or walking in righteousness and growing in righteousness is really just about following Jesus and doing what he does. And I think sometimes we forget some things about Jesus. We know that Jesus comforts and Jesus loves and Jesus blesses and Jesus heals. But Jesus also offends. He's not afraid to offend. Jesus also offends. And many people were offended by his moral teaching. Many people were offended by what he said about his kingdom and him being the king of that kingdom. They wanted his kingdom to be about something else. And many people were just offended by Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, we comfort, we love, we bless, we bring healing any way we can, but at the same time, we have to realize that if we're truly loyal to Jesus, people will find us offensive. People will find us offensive. Jesus says this in John 15. If the world hates you, Understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they also will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus is telling the disciples that just as uh, people are offended by him, people will be offended by the disciples as well. So there's a question there for you. Um, Do people ever treat you different because of your loyalty to Jesus? Now, our goal is not to go out and offend people and then just say, well, sorry you're offended, I'm being persecuted. Our goal is not to wear persecution as some badge of honor, but rather our loyalty to Jesus will put put us at odds with other people at times, where they reject us, where they don't like us, where they at the very least look at us funny. And the question for you is, examine your loyalties. Sometimes we can love Jesus, but we sort of leave parts of Jesus out of our lives that we know other people will be offended by. Some of the very first Christians that lived in the Roman Empire were confronted with this loyalty for Jesus in a way that meant life or death. As part of them being a good citizen of Rome, they were required to bow down or kneel before a statue of the emperor. 
and burn incense before that statue of Caesar and say these words, Caesar is Lord. Just three words. And the early Christians wouldn't do it because they knew it wasn't true. Caesar is in charge of the Roman Empire, but Caesar is not Lord Jesus is. And you can imagine the commotion that this might have caused in their social circles and in their businesses and in their families. Why, why, why won't you kneel? It's just three words. Just say Caesar is Lord. I'll, I'll burn the incense for you. Just say those words. But the early Christians wouldn't do it. And many of them lost their lives because of it. Because of their loyalty to Jesus. They could not say Caesar is Lord when Jesus was their Lord. They refused, and many of them were persecuted to death. You know, as a pastor, one of the things that I'm aware of is that a lot of people have been hurt by the church. They've been hurt uh, by the leadership of churches. They've been hurt by pastors of churches. And so I'm, I'm always aware of that dynamic. I'm always aware that many people are skeptical of the church. And so when I, when I sense that's what's going on, I do my best to be gentle and patient and slow and listen. Uh, but that's not all that happens. I, I think sometimes people are, are just out to challenge me because they find out I'm a pastor. A couple of years ago, I was asked to be on a, on a, a city event a discussion board about diversity in the city, and another pastor asked me to be part of that, and so I sat on the panel with police officers and city leaders and other pastors, and when something like that happens, I just kind of keep my mouth shut until I know it's my turn to speak, and so I was just silent for most of the time. There's a couple hundred people gathered, and I just listened and learned to other people, and then at one point, the, the other pastor on there said, well, Pastor Homos, what do you think? And I just shared, listen, I think I've talked to enough pastors in this area that I know they care about these issues of diversity and they really want to deal with them and they really want to learn. And that's kind of all I said. Afterwards, this lady in the audience made a beeline to me and she came up to me and she cornered me and she said, how dare you? I was like, what? What did I do? She said, how dare you talk about what the pastors and churches want to do for diversity in our city, but not mention the mosques and the imams, but not mention the synagogues and the rabbis. And I was like, what are you talking about? I know, I know the imam that's closest to our church. Chad and I went over to their place a couple years ago and had a great meal with them. We know them. I just don't know what they think about this issue of diversity, so I don't want to speak on their behalf. And when I said that to her, she realized that she had way overstepped. And she had seen an opportunity to come after me because I represented something that she didn't like, and she did. But it gave me pause. It gave me pause as a pastor because I thought, wait a minute, are people really that angry? <laughs> like, are people that angry? Are they that frustrated by us being associated with Jesus or some other reason that they're willing to jump on me when they don't even listen to what I'm saying? And the answer is yes. And so it really made me think and wrestle because I'm asked to go to city events fairly frequently. And I found that as long as I'm just this sort of jelloey, mushy pastor who believes in God, everyone's okay with me. But when I say I'm a representative of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whoa, that's a little too far. That's a little too far. 
And so I have to wrestle with who I'm ultimately loyal to because if I go to an event and I'm asked to pray, how inauthentic is it of me to get up and pray to some generic God rather than the God who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins just because I'm afraid of what people will think of me. I was asked to pray at the opening of a park recently or a couple years ago and I really wrestled. I was like, I can go and I can pray and I know, I know how this works. If I pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done in this park, if I pray for his righteousness and joy and peace to flood this park, everyone will love it. Until I get to the end and I say, in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. And when I say in the mighty name of Jesus, everything changes. But who the heck am I praying to? Whose power am I calling down if I don't in my prayers and in Jesus' name? And so I prayed that prayer in Jesus' name. Not to offend, but I knew it would offend. One of my friends who's a black pastor in the area took a picture of me praying and he posted it on Facebook and he said Pastor John praying in Jesus name an original gangster (laughs) and I was like listen buddy if there's someone who's the opposite of original gangster it's it's me (laughs) okay that's not me at all and listen my, my goal isn't to offend people so that I can have my name known My goal is to be loyal to Jesus. And come whatever, come what may, my number one job is to be faithful to him and not to go out there and pretend I'm not something I'm not. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a follower of the one who loved me, who saw my sin and died for me, who forgives me every day who promises me that I'll spend eternity with him and empowers me right now by sending his Holy Spirit. Not a hair can fall off my head unless he wills it to happen. That's the one that loves me. That's the one that I'm loyal to, my Lord and Savior and my King, Jesus. The world may reject me, but Jesus loves me. The world may persecute me, but Jesus comforts me. Brothers and sisters, Jesus loves you. He saved you. He forgives you. And he's present with you no matter who rejects you. So Jesus tells us in verse 12, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now persecution is promised, but Jesus promises hope for the persecuted. Persecution is promised, but there are promises for the persecuted. Jesus says that we will have reward in heaven. And that gives us hope and blessing even in the midst of trials and hardships and persecution that comes because people come against us or say things about us. If you're honest, though, you go, what about now, Jesus? What about now? I need something right now. Well, Jesus expects that you will see the hope of the future and that will empower you in the now. We get this in so many other areas of life. We go to the gym, not because of the results it'll give us that day, but because if we go to the gym over and over, we know there's hope in the future of being in shape. We put money away day by day, not because we expect to have a nest egg after a week, but because after five years, there will be a great reward. 
Uh, when we're sick, we listen to what the doctor tells us to do, not because we expect to get over it in one day, but we know if we follow his plan, we will get better. But Jesus says, the reward is not now. The reward is coming, but follow me now because the reward is certain. Jesus won't mislead us. If Jesus says, listen, there's a reward and it's not just any reward, it is a great reward, then we can expect that that reward that is coming is greater than any of us can imagine. And it will outweigh any suffering that we experience in this life. When the new city descends and heaven and earth are rejoined and all sin and brokenness and evil and persecution are banished together forever and you and I live before the face of Jesus and his glory illuminates our faces in the entire world. That is the hope that we have that is coming. That is the hope that we have that is coming. Jesus won't mislead us. He's not trying to get uh, uh, us to do the most for him now on earth so that, and then like, what's the least I can pay them in the life to come? If the reward is great as what he says, then it is a great reward. And we know that we can trust him because Jesus was persecuted for us. Long before we were righteous, long before we were loyal to him, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus came, he was spit on, he was reviled. False things were said about him. His body was crushed. He was lifted up on a cross for you. For you. Jesus was persecuted unto death for you. And so we know that we can trust him because he's already done it for us. He's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us, but the great blessing is we get a great reward when we do it for him. And so, brothers and sisters, though you do right, though you do good, though you are loyal to Jesus, know that hardship will come because of that. But you are in a long line of people who have followed God and received pushback. The prophets of the Old Testament were persecuted for speaking God's truth. The ancient Romans were persecuted for not kneeling before a statue of Caesar. And in the days and years to come, you will receive pushback. But be glad and rejoice because your reward in heaven is great. And you follow the long line of those who were blessed to be representatives of God, his son Jesus, and the kingdom. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.